Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here. And it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt free. Hello, Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello, Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at HelloFresh.com. Hey, it's Ryan Reynolds, and I'm here with Keith, co star of my upcoming film, If, only in theaters, May 17th. Do you want to tell people the big news? All right, I'll do it. Sign up now and you'll get unlimited for $15 a month in six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan on us. Mintmobile.com slash switch. Upfront payment of $45 equivalent to $15 per month. Unlimited over 40 gigabytes per month. Face lower speeds. Videos at 480p. Active Mint customers by 531.24 get six months of Paramount Plus Essential Plan. Auto renews after six months. Offer ends May 31st, 2024. Separate Paramount Plus registration required. Terms and conditions apply if rated PG. This is the Ocean Protect podcast talking about the issues that face our oceans and what we can do about it. Presented by Ocean Protect, committed to change. Cool. Joe Lane, welcome to the Ocean Protect podcast. Thank you very much. Great to be here. Joe, whereabouts are you calling from today? Today I am on the beautiful south coast of New South Wales in Tilba Tilba. Tilba Tilba. Now, I've spent a lot of time in New South Wales and, and uh, I live there, but I've never heard of Tilba Tilba. <laughs> well, it's um, being discovered now. It is a beautiful part of the world, about six hours south of Sydney. So we're past Batemans Bay or? Yeah, yeah, about an hour south of the, the bay, if you're a local, the bay. Beautiful coastline, beautiful ocean, dairy country, rolling green hills. It's looking incredibly green at the moment with all this rain that we've been having. It's my happy place. It's very nice. And great place to get some seaweed, I hear. Is that right? Yeah, absolutely. <laughs> yes, yeah. And look, that's what we're here to talk about today. So I'm not sure if you're Jeremy knows. Joe, Joe and myself, we met at the Sydney Ocean Lovers Festival oh, on uh, beautiful Bondi a couple of months ago and we got chatting. I think you, I bought some seaweed shampoo and seaweed soap and some dulse flakes. Joe, you're actually, I love jumping on LinkedIn before our chats and I was impressed with your job description, kelp harvester. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> and, and CEO, as yes. in S-E-A-E-O, which I, which I did love. So <laughs> well, you're probably best to describe, what do you do for a job? What do I do for a job? Well, I think I've got one of the best offices going around. Clearly. <laughs> we get up very early so that is a something that you've got to get used to but it is a wonderful way to start the day so you know, alarm goes off in summer it is a seasonal job around 4 30 get up make the coffee oh that's a sleep in Joe. <laughs> 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 so we bounce out of bed yeah and away we go looking for looking for kelp we've got a, a license from fisheries to collect between the tides, so kelp that's washing in between the high tide and low tide. So that's why we like to get up nice and early as it's, as it's rolling in. It is a beautiful way to start the day. Sometimes we see dolphins and whales see the sunrise and sometimes it's there and sometimes it's not. So then we go looking at, at other places and if it's not there, you know, we don't go back to bed. We come back and have our breakfast and, and sort through the orders. So that's a kind of typical day. If it is there, we collect it, bring it back to Tilba. We wash it in fresh water, but we're fortunate we live at the base of a beautiful mountain and we use mountain spring water to wash it. And 
then hang it out on on racks mm. to dry, and then we we process it and we make it into different products like soaps, shampoos, seasonings. What time are you in the water? Five five o'clock, five thirty, and you. How are you actually catching the seaweed? Are you, you know, like by hand? Do you have nets? Can you give us a little bit more, more detail? Because I just, I can just imagine Joe out there going, right, seaweed, there's some there, there's some there. You must have, you must have a bit better of a uh, process than that. <laughs> Yeah, it's probably not as frustrating as fishing. You know, we can tell from the car whether it's there or not. And it's, you know, when we see those beautiful glassy waves full of kelp, it's a it's a wonderful sight to see. So, yeah, we're in a wetsuit. We go into sort of knee depth. We've got some, you know, it's not very high tech. <laughs> We've got some buckets or plastic containers and we put the kelp in and yeah we we take it back to the trailer so as you can imagine it's quite yeah yeah we pack it into the into the buckets or wash it in the ocean water first get any sand off it and put it in our buckets as you can imagine it's it's quite heavy when I first bought an existing Mm -hmm. business and when I first did that seven years ago I thought oh this is a job for me just going to the beach every day Picking up a few pieces of food, <laughs> but it actually is quite physical. So it was first of all lugging the buckets to the car, then we got a trolley, then we got a trolley with big fat pneumatic tyres. Now we've streamlined the process a little bit as we go to make it. <laughs> and- Real high tech. <laughs> <laughs> You've upgraded your wheelbarrow. Yeah. <laughs> but now wow. we've got a like an e-bike motor and a a super duper trolley that ah. we call the Kelper Helper. The Kelper Helper. Yeah. Of course it's called the Kelper Helper. <laughs> and you haven't been doing this forever, Joe. So how do you become a kelp harvester? Uh yeah, just it's an interesting <laughs> journey. I feel like I've landed, you know, in the right place, but I grew up in Sydney. Never really liked the city, I wouldn't say. I'm I'm not really a city person, but I was interested in science and conservation, geography type thing. And I took a gap year onto a family friend's farm and I was a Jillaroo on a sheep and dairy farm. So I loved, loved, loved that. And that was a great thing to sort of get me some understanding of farming, not being a nine to five job, the challenges, working with the environmental conditions. Mm. So I really loved that. And I came back and I went to uni doing sort of zoology and conservation. And in second year, I thought I should probably get some work experience because everyone was telling me these gloom stories of, oh, if you do zoology, you'll never Mm. get a job. If you do science, you'll never get a job. And (laughs) I'll show you. So I rang around (laughs) some zoos and aquariums and animal parks and just my great fortune, an aquarium in Manly was hiring tour guides to sort of show people around and explain what was going on. So in second year, I sort of fell into that, which changed the course of my study into marine science and really basically changed the course of my life. And I fell in love with the ocean. I ended up training seals and feeding sharks and going diving and just totally dived into that world, literally. So after four years and finishing my study, I became concerned about 
the marine environment and a sense of urgency to protect it. So I went back to uni and did a postgrad in environmental studies. You know, even back then, there was a book called Our Common Future. We're talking about greenhouse mm. effect where, mm. you know, we're, we're concerned. We're really concerned about temperature changes. And that's, mm, yeah. that's a while ago when, when I was at uni. So, yeah, then I've had a few interesting jobs. And in 2002, I moved to the South Coast working for Coast Care, which was a federal government program, which was a wonderful way to get introduced to the South Coast. So I I met people from council and fisheries and national parks, and then that program wound up and I got a job working for fisheries. And when I was working for fisheries, I processed a permit for a company called Sea Health Products. I thought, well, that's interesting. That's a permit to collect marine vegetation. What's that all about? Um, so that's really where I my interest was sparked when I was working for fisheries. Little did I realise that about 10 years after that, I would buy that very business. Wow. <laughs> so the business, Sea Health Products, started <laughs> in the late 60s by this cool lady called Betty who apparently was a hippie vegetarian and knew all the amazing health benefits of seaweed and she was buying it from overseas and then she came to visit her father who'd moved to Naruma and saw all this beautiful mm. kelp rolling in and she said, that looks beautiful, why can't I use that? So she pre-Google worked out what she needed to do, bought herself a big machine and Woman's Weekly did a story on her in 1970 and she got letters from all over Australia saying, that sounds amazing, please, please, can I have some of your kelp? Apparently she had to take her son out of school to collect enough kelp to fulfil all the orders and that's really how the, how the business started. So, yeah, Scott kept it going, the son, and then he retired and moved out of the area and I just found that out and I approached them and said, what are you doing with that seaweed business? And I bought it in 2015. Wow. Wow, what a fantastic story. Now, now, can you tell us a little bit about um, the products themselves? I'm obviously having a squiz on the website, but what are your main products and what are the benefits of those products? Yeah, so we still do what Betty did. We, you know, we get up, we collect it, we wash it, we dry it and we mill it. So we've got the big machine that she got from Melbourne. We call the machine Betty because she works really hard processing the kelp. So yeah, we mill it to a, a fine flake and also a powder. And then it's incredibly versatile. I actually sometimes just take a spoonful and wash it down. So use it like a, a natural multivitamin. It's high in iodine, which a lot of people are lacking in Australia mm. and globally. It's got lots of vitamins, minerals, trace elements, magnesium, zinc, calcium, more calcium than milk, more vitamin C than orange juice. It's got all of these amazing nutrients from the ocean in a really bioavailable form. Mm. It's got lots of uses as well besides food, cosmetics, shampoo, if you uh, pet food, agricultural feed, fertilizer. There's some cool research going into bioplastics. Mm. In America, they've extracted an element called oligomanate that has been approved for use as a treatment for Alzheimer's. So my little business, we just do seasonings and soaps and shampoo, but there's so, so much potential for all of these other applications. 
Oh, for sure. But we want to we want to give a little plug to your little business. We want to buy. I mean, what, what what did Brad buy off you? Some shampoo. Obviously, you know, does some wonders. So, <laughs> yeah. you, so, so take us through what products you sell out of your business. With the seasonings, Betty just got the kilt and put it in a jar, and that's great. You can add it to your smoothie, sprinkle it on your porridge, on. I usually say whatever you have for breakfast, it's a great way to start the day. So you can sprinkle it on your egg, on your avocado, on your tomato. When I went to markets, I think it's wonderful. I I love the taste of it, but it doesn't have a super strong taste. So at the markets, I found people go, "Mm, it's okay. So then we started to make a range of different seasonings. So we have one that's called furikake, which is based on a Japanese rice seasoning, which has got chili and sesame seeds, and that's really popular. This one got a gold medal. We smoke it for seven hours with Australian red gum chips, so the smoky flavour is really lovely. And then we have another one with finger lime, Australian native finger lime, which is really nice on seafood. So, you know, it's incredibly versatile. You can add it to lots of things and get the health benefits. And, you know, now chefs and foodies are are getting interested in sky's the limit. You can put it in cakes. You can put it on pancakes. You put it in your bread, in your pasta. My um, neighbour is a soap maker so Match made that was another fortuitous <laughs> meeting and so she started experimenting um putting the the kelp into the soap and it's it's very moisturizing it's it's a lovely soap we've got two varieties with honey and one with blue clay and activated charcoal so yeah they're, they're beautiful soaps mm. and the shampoo is um relatively new and that works really well as well that's nourishing and moisturizing and and quite popular Look, my, my hair's never looked so fabulous, Joe. Uh, and Jeremy's going to buy a, a case of the uh, shampoo because he, he does everything to try and be like me. So, uh. I actually am, as we speak, I'm buying the four-pack spices because they sound absolutely delicious and you've obviously got the health benefits. So, no, no, you're about, you're about to get an order there. So that's really interesting because seaweed is really – I'd say it's probably the new buzzword and and, and we all know plastics killing us, but seaweed, you know, it's popping up everywhere, seaweed farming and food production. Have you seen that in recent years that all of a sudden everyone's jumping on the old seaweed bandwagon? (laughs) Yeah, absolutely. Seaweed's having a moment. It's certainly been around for centuries, probably thousands of years, but definitely in the last three years, I would say. It's gaining momentum and gaining a lot of interest. And I think one of the the reasons is it's a hopeful story. It's a positive story. We've heard enough negativity around our situation. And so I think seaweed is is having a moment that we want to hang on to and use it as a positive story and a hopeful solution to the situation. Yeah, look, look, it is a, a story of optimism. There's no doubt about that. And certainly the, the health benefits of seaweed and sea products are pretty amazing. Like I facetiously say my hair look, never looks so fabulous, but the nutrient density, you know, they talk about the calcium and the and the iodine in particular. Like people don't realize actually how, how big of an issue iodine is. I remember hearing about how back in the, the 40s or thereabouts in China, they had massive problems. There was a deficiency of that they realized later, an Australian uh, doctor realized that there was a deficiency in iodine, which is causing the, the goiters within the uh, population of China and also some sort of mental retardation of the of kids. Long story short, the, the Chinese emperor, I believe, put an instruction to dose the salt of China with iodine and all of a sudden all these health problems just disappeared. And But it's interesting, you talk about you're obviously just harvesting 
basically kelp out of the ocean. There's no, is there any farming of kelp or seaweed within Australia? There are currently no kelp farms. So I suppose just rewind a little bit, the, the, you can use seaweed and kelp interchangeably, yeah. but seaweed basically covers around 12,000 species globally. Mm. And seaweed is then divided into three main groups, red, brown, and green, and the kelps are a type of brown. So it's correct to say kelp is a type of seaweed, but you can't, not all seaweed is kelp. We have no kelp farms in Australia right now. We do have some seaweed farms. So there's people growing a red type of seaweed in Tasmania and South Australia, I believe, the asparagopsis. And then we also have some seaweed, some land-based seaweed farms. But what I'm finding is there's more and more demand. Kelp harvesting is, is seasonal. It's inconsistent. Like this year with the La Nina, we've had a pretty low season. The idea of kelp farming appeals to me because of increasing the availability of the product was my main reason for chasing this you know, many years ago. But now as I do more homework around you know, what's involved, kelp farming just ticks so many boxes. It's, it's good for the environment. It can improve biodiversity, reduce ocean acidification. It's also referred to as restorative ocean farming. It has the spillover effect of improving the environment and increasing the kelp forests as well, so ha- having a, a restorative impact. The other thing, I live on the south coast. We were very hard hit in the black summer fires in 2019, 2020. Everyone's had a hard time recently with COVID. So the other benefit of of trying to introduce this is it's developing a new industry and creating regional employment for different areas around Australia. So I've been working quite hard on this for the last couple of years. Correct me if I'm wrong, though, you have to be pretty careful where you put the kelp farm. You know, you can't just go chuck it anywhere in any ecosystem because it'll have adverse effects if it's in a place where kelp traditionally hasn't grown. When you go, hey, I want to start a kelp farm, you would you go, hey, where is the kelp coming from now, and then put a, a farm in that area? How, how would you locate a suitable site? Yeah, definitely. So, yeah, you, you certainly want to... F- find an area where the kelp has grown or is growing naturally. So unfortunately, it's not going to be in estuaries. It's not going to be where the oyster farms are. It's not going to be in nice calm waters. So that's one of the challenges of setting up kelp farming is that kelp generally likes areas where there's a lot of movement and and turbulence because that brings the upwelling of nutrients. So that brings its challenges as far as engineering a site or engineering a farm that's going to withstand the conditions of our coastline. In 2019, I travelled overseas and I was able to go and visit a whole range of kelp farms. We were really lucky. We went to Korea, Ireland, Scotland, Norway, Faroe Islands, US and Canada. So we were able to see kelp farms working and kelp kelp farms in operation and what's involved in that. In a lot of areas though, in Norway, Faroe Islands, they're in the fjords and they're in kind of more protected areas. So I think that will be a challenge for us in Australia, but we are working with some um, companies that have farms in California, which is a bit more exposed, so that we can make sure that the farm will stay intact. It's, It's still... We're hoping that we can get something in the water next year, but it will still need a number of trials in different areas to 
to work out where it's going to grow best, how quickly it's going to grow. Is it going to work, I suppose? Because not only you want uh, the farm to survive those larger sort of current areas, you want it to thrive. So I'm just trying to Google um, what an actual kelp farm looks, but could you just take us through what a, a, the summary of, of what a traditional kelp farm may look like? Yeah, sure. It's basically some anchors, um, some some a mooring line, some rope, and it looks similar, I suppose, to a mussel farm. From the top of the water, you don't see much at all, all the actions underneath the water, obviously. From the top, you'll see a couple of floats. But you grow the seeded lines or the baby kelp and then you put it out onto the rope in the ocean. And then it's what they call, you know, a zero input. It just absorbs the nutrients whilst it's in the ocean. So it doesn't need fresh water, doesn't need any land, doesn't need any fertiliser. That's one of the um, big advantages of kelp farming in the ocean. But really it's not a, a major footprint you can actually grow a lot of kelp in a, in a small space you have your anchors you've got your your mooring lines and you've got your your long lines where you attach your kelp and, and away it goes and does it need to be uh, what depth because i imagine you probably need a bit of sunlight to get the kelp going so is it a certain depth or am i reading that wrong well, that's part of the, the trials, but around three to seven metres. Yep. So, yeah, okay. you're right. They do need the light. They photosynthesise like a plant. So they use the sun. They use the nutrients in the water. They absorb the carbon dioxide as well, and they grow. And, and how does it affect the ecology of the sort of adjacent area? Like obviously it's not like a ocean aquaculture farm and that dosing it with, you know, antibiotics and feed and it all floats, you know, a lot of it sinks to the bottom and kills everything. There's no inputs, there's no energy, there's no water, but obviously it has a physical presence in the water column. Is that a, a has any negative impacts or is there a lot of positive benefits? Um, we are working through that at the moment. So in New South Wales, um, we're doing an environmental impact assessment around that. Um, so we'll be looking at the water quality and, and some benthic surveys as well. But from overseas, there's lots of papers showing, you know, positive impacts, particularly localised impacts around the reducing ocean acidification. And in, in some farms, they are growing more than one species. So kelp grows really well with mussels in America. They also have oysters and scallops. When the kelp is growing, it's taking the, the carbon out of the water, which then allows the mussels to grow better mm. so they can grow faster, they're stronger shells and, and there are some studies there where their muscles are, you know, 20% bigger, better quality product growing alongside the kelp. So there's positives there and the kelp grows well because it absorbs the nutrients from the other products that are on the farm. Yeah, that, that, that's an interesting thing. I mean, as you probably know, we've got a nutrient problem um, certainly in Australia I wonder if there's any nitrogen trading or nutrient nutrient trading in high nutrient loaded areas. Could we be kelp farming to reduce that? Have you looked or thought about that at all? No, I haven't. But I know overseas that they have grown seaweed in really polluted areas to try and clean it up because it can absorb nutrients and you know filter the water. I suppose my real focus is it's. Like I said, there's no kelp farms in Australia. There's two main reasons for that. One is the regulatory process is 
quite complex. And the other one is because it's, it's a chicken and egg thing, we don't fully understand the breeding requirements of our unique species. So even though kelp is farmed in the Northern Hemisphere, it's a, obviously it's a different species. So having an understanding of how our Australian species of kelp grows has actually just taken us five years to work out. So that's what I've been putting most of my energy into is to breeding kelp so that we can put it out onto our farms. That's, that's really interesting that there is that constraint but also the regulatory restrictions because there's all a big push around the blue-green economy. You know, the Scott Morrison announced a whole bunch of funding towards it. And obviously there's a lot of talk around using seaweed to supplement cattle feed to reduce methane emissions substantially. And obviously, thinking real big picture, there's a, a, a real big push to, I guess, promote the use of seaweed farms to have massive carbon sequestration benefits as well. Like uh, there's talk of, you know, okay, if we had seaweed farms covering, you know, say 5 to 10% of the ocean surface, we'd achieve massive reductions of CO2 from the atmosphere. So there's there's some real big picture talks around the potential application of seaweed, but it sounds like there's some there's a couple of key constraints to that. Is that a fair assumption or conclusion? How would you like to look five years younger? In a clinical study, people that had volume added with Juvederm Voluma XC in the cheeks perceived themselves as looking five years younger at six months after treatment. Look younger, feel like you. Add volume for lift and contour in the cheeks with Juvederm Voluma XC. Reverse signs of aging by adding volume to smooth laugh lines with Juvederm Volure XC. For important safety information and to find a licensed specialist, visit Juvederm.com. That's J-U-V-E-D-E-R-M.com. Not for people with severe allergic reactions, allergies to lidocaine, or the proteins used in Juvederm. Common side effects include injection site redness, swelling, pain, tenderness, firmness, lumps, bumps, bruising, discoloration, or itching. There's a risk of unintentional injection into a blood vessel, which can cause vision abnormalities, blindness, stroke, temporary scabs, or scarring. Talk to a licensed specialist to find out if it's right for you. Hold up. What was that? Boring. No flavor. That was as bad as those leftovers you ate all week. Kiki Palmer here, and it's time to say hello to something fresh and guilt-free. Hello Fresh. Jazz up dinner with pecan-crusted chicken or garlic butter shrimp scampi. Now that's music to my mouth. Hello Fresh. Let's get this dinner party started. Discover all the delicious possibilities at hellofresh.com. Yeah, it is. You know, we've got the aquaculture strategy, we've got the marine science plan, we've got all of these strategic plans that are encouraging and supporting the increase of algae and seaweed farms in Australia. Fantastic. So for me in New South Wales to do this, it's classified as state significant development. So SSD process is as if I'm building an airport. (laughs) So it's that's the planning path at the moment in New South Wales. So that's why it's also taken me so long to sort of build up the courage to go, am I actually going to do this? Because obviously it's quite costly and environmental impact assessment is generally three to 500 pages. Yeah, yeah. Yes, yeah. 
And that, as, you, as you allude to, it's very expensive. Like, unfortunately, you would have had to have hired a very expensive overpaid consultant like I was in a previous life and then have to go through the rigmarole of that assessment, which can take a very, very long time. And it just does, does seem unusual. Like, your state significant projects, generally they're stuff like airports, highways, uh, massive quarry sites, et cetera, and a kelp farm, mm-hmm. like, you know, having some moorings in a, in a, in a reasonably barren ocean environment. You think you just flip that one through and go, hey. That's- <laughs> <laughs> I, that, that seems quite remarkable, if I'm honest. Yeah, so that's one of the challenges, and I'm sure that that will, you know, change in the future, and the MBCRC are working on looking at a national approach to governance which would would certainly help. So NBCRC is the Marine Bioproducts Cooperative Research Centre. So that's a massive organisation where you've got all these stakeholders working together to, you know, create marine bioproducts. But we're in Program 1, which is about creating sustainable biomass. So we can't do all these amazing things like, you know, make bioplastics and make agricultural feed if we don't have the biomass to do that. And that's really a blockage in Australia right now is that we don't have a really consistent supply of Australian kelp. The way you can support Joe is go to seahealthproducts.com.au and buy some of her amazing stuff. I've just done that. My order is on the way. That should be on your computer now. Because, <laughs> because as Brad pointed out, Time is money, and as we know, everything's going up at the moment, and when you're sitting there trying to do the research and run your business, you know, it's a, it's a big thing. Is there a kelp industry association? There is a seaweed, Australian Seaweed Association, yes. Yep. So that's, I mean, it's quite a small, very small industry right now. I'm hopeful that it will grow in the future, and I think what we're trying to do is we have, with my science background, I'm totally nerding out on the whole breeding side. I'm loving it. You know, we're, we've really... Um... <laughs> <laughs> well, it just, it just sounds so cool. What you just said before, I mean, it's, it doesn't require any nutrients, no power. You know, the, the benefits in my simple mind far outweigh any negative uh, impacts. I, I think it's really cool. I take the hat off to you, Joe. Oh, I think it's amazing. Can, can we nerd out? Can we can we can we give Joe an opportunity to nerd out on the uh, seaweed breeding shenanigans? So, Joe, Joe, we might have to cut you off after like twenty minutes. Give us an elevator pitch of uh, seaweed breeding shenanigans. Seaweed breeding shenanigans. <laughs> it's it's so awesome. So we go diving. We've got a broodstock collection permit. So you have to check all of the plants and and look closely to see if it's got any reproductive material and you take that back to the lab clean it dry it and stress it out so you have to stress out that reproductive material and the the kelp goes oh wow I nearly you know I'm stressed I'm going to release all of my biological material so it releases millions of what we call zoospores which is a clever strategy in the ocean because the chances of meeting are slim when you've got all of, all of these currents and things where in the lab they release millions we can catch millions the zoospores meet they turn into male and female gametophytes then they meet and they turn into sporophytes now we can recognize male and female gametophytes they look you know this is all underneath the microscope and it's really cool but once they get to this gametophyte stage we can put them under red light and they actually just stay as gametophytes and they don't fertilize so when you want to create 
some sporophytes, some baby kelp to put out onto your farm or to put out as a restoration project, we can do that. So we're trying to create a seed bank for Australia. We've got babies from Eden, babies from Bermagui, babies from Naruma, babies from Sydney and hoping to expand that. There's just the scale of what we can do. Like uh, I'll send you some baby photos, but <laughs> it's incredible. Just one <laughs> drop, one drop underneath the microscope and there's thousands of these wow. baby kelps that can then each turn into wow. a plant that can then go out in the ocean and do all this amazing stuff. So I'm interested, you know, I started from a business perspective going, I need more kelp for my business. Now, I just want to put more kelp out in the ocean because it can have such benefit for ocean health, which impacts everyone's health. You know, the health of our oceans, we're so linked to. How'd that, uh, did, I, did I go too long? <laughs> No, 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 great. But, but basically, for me, you could have just said I am the IVF queen of help, basically. <laughs> it's, it's really fascinating. I can, I can see how you're, you're, you're geeking out on it because you, you basically have the ability to produce something that's got so many different benefits. And as you say, one drop can produce thousands of plants. That, that part really, really excites me as well. You know, you go, well, Hold on, guys. We're, you know, to to for instance, and, and Brett will agree with me. You know, we're cutting down all our trees to grow grain, to feed cows, to feed humans. And as you touched on before, surely kelp could be a, a supplement to that, or or an addition to that. And when we're facing the, the biggest environmental crisis of the planet's life, we're running out of time, as everyone knows on this podcast. Um, we don't, we don't necessarily have another five, ten years. We're, we've got to start, you know, action's got to happen now. Well, on the topic of time and stress, obviously ocean waters are warming, increased acidification. Is the window of opportunity to actually utilise kelp diminishing? Like if, if oceans get significantly warmer or more acidic, is that going to impact our ability to actually utilise these solutions in terms of kelp and seaweed farming? Yeah, there's certainly a, a, a sense of urgency from where I am um, and that's part of also why I'm trying to create a seed bank. So if I can get kelp from different parts of Australia, this is what they're doing overseas. So I'm not doing anything groundbreaking except that it hasn't been done in Australia. This is what's happening overseas. They're creating um, seed stock, then they can do, you know, create different strains that are perhaps more temperature tolerant or have different right. things. So I think, you know, step one is understand the breeding, which we've managed to do, and then, yeah, create this seed bank, which I think there certainly is a sense of urgency around and that's what we're trying to do. And then once we've got them sitting there in the red room bubbling away, like when I was overseas I met a guy, he had his his dolls seeds or gametophytes bubbling away from the 80s so he doesn't then have to go back out into the wild and collect and if 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 the wild population disappears because of temperature he's still got this seed bank mm. i was going to say it's very similar to a seed bank mm. yep you know it's the same concept you know we've, we've got them stored away in somewhere in the middle of norway or something essentially mm. it's a similar model to that so in a way, your your research your research 
that you're doing is also future-proofing or trying to future-proof as much as possible to then find out, well, if sea temperature does rise, you know, another degree or whatever, hey, we might be able to engineer a certain kelp that will be able to withstand that because let's face it, it's still warming up. And that part's really, really cool because it's really trying to protect us and for future generations. So it's interesting, your research is, is also for your own company and that's good, everyone needs to make money and, and uh, make a dollar. But it's also the, the more holistic approach of, well, you know, how do we solve the problem of what we're doing to our oceans? I really take my hat off to you, Joe. It's, uh, it's an amazing thing that you're doing and um, it's very, very interesting. And on the topic of species, Joe, we had a very quick chat about this, and I might be misremembering it, but in terms of the, the supplementing the cattle feed, am I right in saying there's a particular type of species that is proposed to be used to mitigate methane emissions from cows? Is that correct? Yeah, yeah, absolutely. It's a red species, and it's called Asparagopsis. To be honest, I don't know a lot about it, besides, but, yeah, they are – farming it in Tasmania and South Australia and then I'm not sure they formulate it and give it to cattle as well as sheep and because of the their ruminants so because of some amazing um, reaction that happens in their stomach it reduces the amount of methane that they burp and methane is a major greenhouse gas so a massive yeah but am I right in saying have we got enough potential supply to meet the the potential demand for that species? No, I think that having, you know, similar challenges to us as far as the whole breeding, like, you know, Australian species are really quirky, I suppose. So I think they've had challenges as far as working out the life cycle and the breeding. That's one thing. That's where we're at. But then being able to scale that to the extent where you can farm out kilometres to grow enough to for this impact. But, yeah, there's certainly a lot of progress happening, but I'm not sure exactly where they're at. Yeah, it's interesting. Yeah, look, but obviously the challenges remain in terms of getting sort of, you know, scaling up this potential seaweed and kelp industry within Australia. And it staggers me that these are considered state-significant projects. That just seems like a simple hurdle uh, that could be quashed by a suitably motivated state government or federal government. Well, I did try that. And as, um, you know, Jeremy said, the urgency is there. I don't have five years to wait for a policy change. So the, I've had to go down this path. And, you know, I did used to work for fisheries and I did sort of, I was quietly confident that I'd be able to navigate this path, but, well, which I am, but it, it's challenging. Where is the best kelp in the world? You know, we love Australian kelp. You'll probably think you'll probably be biased, but. Is there like Icelandic kelp or, you know, is there famous kelps from around the world? <laughs> oh, that's a great question. Interestingly enough, as far as farmed kelp, there's only a handful of species and the main one is, you know, Saccharina latissima, which is the sugar kelp. So that's being grown in Norway, in the Faroes, in America. It's the same species of kelp. There is a Alaria, which is a a winged kelp, which is very nice flavour. What's the kelp like in New Zealand? <laughs> <laughs> really terrible. <laughs> no, it's just, no, no, I, I suspect it should be quite good. I mean, we... we, we, we oh, really, do you? Well, why would you speculate that? Well, because I just remember swimming in the oceans all the time <laughs> over here and there was kelp everywhere, you know. It's, there's an abundance of it. Um, is there any kelp farming going on over the side of the ditch? 
There is. Well, we're talking to the researchers over there at uh, Waikato, is it? University of Waikato. Yeah, they're doing some cool stuff as well, like as far as the breeding and they're doing some trials. So we're, we're talking to them and, and working with them a little bit. Similar, like same species. So they're doing the Econia radiata, which is my favourite kelp. <laughs> so there's quite a lot of interest in New Zealand and your similar climate, similar conditions, beautiful clean water. Australia and New Zealand, it's a new emerging industry, the, the kelp farming side of things. Yeah, it seems to be emerging, but I think it, from my perspective, not emerging possibly quick enough. And the, the discussions we've had previously, particularly with Corey Hancock in relation to the potential carbon sequestration benefits of, of seaweed farming, there's a lot of potential there, but the, the scale required to achieve those significant sequestration is enormous. I'm just trying to get your thoughts on how realistic uh, some of the you know the the massive uh, seaweed farms could be to actually appropriately sequester carbon like Corey and Brian von Hersen are talking about five to ten percent of the ocean surface covered in in sort of seaweed farms I mean is that even remotely possible and I think they were talking about deep sea seaweed farming as well which I know um, Tim Flannery has spoken about and presented about before like taking nutrient rich water from the bottom of the ocean and, and having very very long seaweed farms to sequester that carbon in the seaweed and potentially deposit it at the bottom of the seafloor or somehow return it to the, the land environment to sequester into the soil possibly. From your perspective, how realistic are those sort of solutions or how practical? And numbers because, geez, 15 to 20% of the ocean's surface is a lot of seaweed. Yeah, that book um, Sunlight and Seaweed by Tim Flannery, he's saying, you know, 9% of the ocean surface is around four and a half times the size of Australia. So, you know, the ocean is big. Sure, there's there's space out there and the reason kelp's not growing out there is because there's not enough nutrients. So the marine permaculture concept is a great idea. I think they're still at the pilot stage as well. The ocean is very dynamic and very powerful. So trying to engineer something that's going to withstand the extreme conditions that we have out there is is going to be expensive and challenging. There are also some people, uh, I think in Tasmania, looking at using uh, or reusing oil rigs um, and and planting kelp around that. So I think, you know, using existing structures is, is also a good idea. It does need to be a big scale for such a big problem, but I think we're still at that trial stage and hopefully we can get things through in a timely manner. I think replacing thing like utilizing seaweed to replace things and I'm really interested in things where we can lock like building materials so using seaweed to replace other things like the bioplastics and locking the carbon away into into bricks and and houses and things like that has a lot of potential and a lot of research to be done in that in a really constructive you know important way replace using seaweed for for the fashion industry, you know, using seaweed in a whole range of different products that are typically things that are impacting the amount of carbon dioxide in our atmosphere. So utilising it as a replacement will have a good impact. There's still some interesting science around the sinking of seaweed to the bottom of the ocean and and how that works and how, yeah, what the impacts of of that are. So I'm not able to, to comment on that. 
No, it's okay. No, it's okay. Look, I know you're uh, you're pretty busy uh, running your uh, business uh, on its own without delving into the the science of uh, solving the world's climate problems. But it's a fa- it really is a fascinating area. Um, like I feel as though we could probably nerd out all day on on seaweed uh, uh, shenanigans, but we probably need to get let you get back to uh, drying some seaweed. But uh, been a fascinating chat, Joe. I know we'd need to let you get back to uh, your, your your real job, but. Sorry, Jamie, do you have any final questions uh, for Joe or comments? Well, yeah, I do. I mean, and we've touched on it, but are there any key actions you'd recommend for governments to support or encourage kelp farming? Apart from letting it happen, but are there any key messages that, uh, that you think that, you, you, that we could recommend? Yeah, I think what we need is like an assessment of if you – aren't in a navigational channel, if you are on sand, if you are using an endemic species, if you tick all of these boxes, then this activity is allowed. There's plenty of documentation from overseas that it has a positive environmental impact. So I think rather than, you know, for me doing a SSD and for the next person to do an SSD, I think we just need a sort of generalised kelp strategy or a kelp plan that is an overarching document that says, as long as you do this, this and this and you use this equipment, then we deem that this has low impact to positive impact. So I think that planning process, I'm just trying to get my farm up and then I think I'll, you know, I'll fight the fight for the next people. But um, (laughs) I did try to fight the fight initially and I thought, okay, I will just play the game do the pathway, go the pathway. And there is an association. We have got the NBCRC. There is definitely interest gaining momentum. So I suppose we just need people to be aware of seaweed, start eating it, start talking about it, start understanding it, start supporting it. We we want more seaweed so that we can have it in restaurants, have it in, you know, a more mainstream part of our, our lifestyle. But I think, you know, the more people are understanding the importance and all of the health benefits, so, you know, human health, ocean health and, and planet health, the better. Well, um, this will obviously be in our show notes, guys, but as I said before, to, to help Joe and the industry, jump on seahealthproducts.com.au. You can get your shampoos, you can get your spices, as I have, but also we'll have, um, I guess, the industry association, the Seaweed Industry Association, we'll put that link in the show notes and get on, as, as Joe said, Go, go try some seaweed. Get out there and, and talk about it and, and get invested in it because from where we sit, it's going to be a really big industry and it's um, it's very exciting. That's where I think this is going to change. I think there's uh, some capitalism is going to drive change in this space. Like there's clearly a lot of money to be made out of a, a sustainable seaweed industry within Australia. The product applications are possibly endless. The demand for it is enormous and if and and there's clearly a lot of money to be made out of such an industry so i I really feel as though with some heavy hitting you know investors involved i think i think we're probably going to see some significant change so look if you're if you're in that space i'd certainly encourage you getting uh, having looking at further and maybe delving into uh the the science of it with joe a bit further but um again we probably need to uh land this plane it's been such a great chat joe oh well, joe thank you so much for coming on our, our podcast we say it all the time but we get to chat it's such a pleasure and an honor to, to to host this podcast we get to chat to so many amazing people just like yourself with uh, amazing stories so thanks for taking the time to uh, to come out today and go pack some waters <laughs> 
<laughs> thank you so much. It's my favourite topic, so thank you. <laughs> boom, boom. Shake the room. Thanks for listening to the Ocean Protect podcast. If you'd like to find out more about us and what we do, check us out at oceanprotect.com.au.